You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. In 1932, uh, Pierre Poilon opened a bakery in Paris, and it has since become one of the most well-known and most successful bakeries of all time. He he was a a native of Normandy. He opened the bakery in what was, at the time, the Bohemian Arts District of Paris, and he was quickly received well by the people in that region. He would occasionally, he was known to occasionally accept art for bread in place of money for the uh, literal starving artists there in Paris. Uh, But in 1973, after suffering a stroke, he turned his business over to his son, Lionel Poilon. Lionel uh, took over the business and channeled into it his sort of artistic impulses. He was raised in the Bohemian Arts District. He was an artist at heart, and he really channeled his artistic impulses into the uh, bakery. In fact, he opened two more bakeries in Paris as well, and he, and he quickly began wowing celebrities and reporters alike with his work. He one time fabricated a, an entire bedroom made entirely of dough for the Salvador Dali. Uh, one of his uh, more famous creations was the world's finest library of bread books, literal bread books, including almanacs on wheat flour and 19th century treatises on toasting. Uh, if bread were a metaphor, then Lionel Poilon was the most eloquent and contemporary author of its time. But none of that is really what made him well-known or successful as a baker. Uh, What defined him in, in his world of baking, what made him unique was his commitment to the basics of baking. He ascribed to a very old, basic way of doing baking. Every baking appliance and methodology in his kitchen uh, was from the 19th century or, or beyond, uh, older. He used brick ovens over oak wood fires. He used only the finest stone ground wheat in his uh, kitchen. Next to each of his kneading troughs in his kitchen were hanging buckets for water instead of an automated faucet. In fact, at one point, he, was, uh, he explained this in an interview. He said, I intentionally installed a medieval system. In baking school, students learn to push a button that delivers 60 liters of water at 40 degrees Celsius. And I tried that, but then I realized that the push button just stops them from thinking about what they're doing. It disengages a man from his work. With buckets, a baker has to think about all of the variables that are unique to each loaf of bread that he makes. You see, in spite of all the new and popular appliances in the world of modern baking, for Lionel Poilon, the basics still produced the best results. And this is true for a lot of things in our world today, isn't it? Uh, For example, it is far, far more impactful to receive a handwritten invitation to a party than a Facebook invite. Something more personal about that. There's something more impactful. If you are a coffee drinker, and and I mean a coffee drinker, not just someone who drinks coffee, but a (laughs) coffee drinker, then you know that freshly ground beans in a pour-over is a far, far better uh, product than the modern abomination of a Keurig. (laughs) In a world full of helpful innovations, 
The basics still produce the best results. It's just the bottom line. This morning, we embark on 1 John, and in many ways, it is a book that is all about the basics of Christianity. John is interested in coming back to the basics of the faith to instruct believers of his time in foundational teachings, foundational doctrine of Christianity. And and so my hope is that as we open this book and we work through it over the next probably what's going to be like 18 to 19 weeks for this series, just heads up. All right, Um, we're gonna have a Palm Sunday and an Easter Sunday in there. You're gonna have a few uh, guest preachers come in as well and that that won't be uh, preaching out of 1 John, so it'll take a little bit longer than that. And listen, like, don't let that freak you out. What are we gonna do when we finish 1 John? We're just gonna go to another book of the Bible. It's not like we're in a hurry, you know? I wanna do this book justice, but as we go through it, my hope is that we too might glean a little bit from this letter, that that we might learn the simple beauty of what it means to follow Jesus. The last couple of years, I think, have been extraordinarily challenging for, for everyone. Uh, we were talking about this last night with a, with a couple friend of ours that, you know, the last few years have just been really hard. It, it, it's, it's created a lot of, 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 I don't know, dissonance and trauma in people that, that I don't think we were prepared for, and particularly in this country. And, and it's pushed a lot of people who identify as Christians to, uh, into a process that, that we have come to call deconstruction. You've probably heard this term before. Um, the act of rethinking one's faith, removing certain belief systems, often to the point of no longer identifying as a Christian at all. And, and let me just say to clarify, There are times when deconstruction is absolutely not only helpful but necessary, right? We all run the risk of adopting views uh, about our faith and about God and about Christianity that are more influenced by culture than the Bible. And in those instances, we do need to evaluate those belief systems and remove anything that is counter to Scripture. 100% believe that. But my concern is it seems like the people I know who have engaged in deconstruction have had very little constructed faith to begin with. And so they didn't really understand the basics of the faith. And so when they began the deconstruction process, they were taking apart things that were not from the Bible to begin with. And that there really wasn't much left after that. And so uh, I'm, my concern is that the emphasis of deconstruction right now in our world and in Christendom is a little bit missing the point. And so rather than trying to tell you all the reasons why tearing down your faith maybe isn't the best option, uh, I want us to instead, through the next several weeks of 1 John, build up our faith, to actually construct something that is biblical and scriptural in a very basic and simple manner with the foundational doctrines that we find in 1 John. And so it is fitting, I believe, for this morning that we begin our time with the single most foundational building block of the Christian faith, and that is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read with me in 1 John. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 John. Uh, We're gonna cover the first four verses this morning. And we are, like I said, through this series, we're gonna go verse by verse. And I mean verse by verse. We're gonna really dig deep. What you're gonna find, um, you know, we've been in the Advent series in a lot of more narrative types of passages, the Gospels and some Old Testament prophets that, that are a little more narrative in nature. And what I mean by that is they tell a story. And, and so you can read a lot of verses and you can cover a lot of ground in those passages because they're really just sort of narrating the events and then we extract from them. In letters like this, every verse is just jam-packed with, with teaching and with meaning. And, and so I want us to spend as much time as necessary to glean from John uh, and, and ultimately from the Holy Spirit what we're, what we're intended to get. Let's look at the first two verses. 
He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John begins the letter by immediately drawing the readers to the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the arrival of Jesus Christ. He says in verse one, this is concerning the word of life. It's the same word, by the way, in John's gospel who became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's gonna draw us back to the basics of the faith and remind us of the reality that Jesus really did come to the earth in the flesh, that he was here. The life was, he says, manifested. In other words, the life came into being. He he came in the flesh. Not that Jesus began at that moment, but that he came into the flesh in that moment, into real space and time. He dwelt among us. And he's going to give us four aspects of this reality of the arrival of Christ. First, he says, it was a reality heard. That's what he says in verse one. What we have heard. Uh, This doesn't mean, by the way, the teachings of Jesus. He's not talking about hearing the teachings of Jesus. Uh, If that were true, then then we could all say in this room, I've heard the word of life, right? Every time I hear the teachings of Jesus, I'm hearing the word of life. Every time I go to church, I hear the teachings of Jesus when I open the Bible. So I've heard the word of life. But that's not what John's argument is here. What he's saying is not merely I've heard the teachings of Christ, but more specifically, I've heard Christ teach. In other words, he's setting up an eyewitness account here. And we know that by the second thing that he says. It's not only a reality heard, but it's a reality seen. He says in verse one as well, what we have seen with our eyes, not what we imagine seeing, not a vision, not like a prophetic dream, not something that we metaphorically saw, we saw it with our eyeballs. This expression, seen, is only found in the New Testament this time, one time. Eorakamein is the Greek verb, it comes from the the root orao, Uh, It's only found this one instance in the New Testament. But incidentally, in the Old Testament that has been translated into Greek, we call this the Septuagint, uh, which was translated, remember the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, uh, and sometime around 200 years prior to uh, the time of Christ, it was translated from Hebrew into Greek. We call this the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, we find this verb an astounding 91 times. And 90 out of those 91 times, it means to literally see, to literally see with your eyes. Only one time does it mean something different. So it's overwhelmingly a verb that, that conveys the idea of physically seeing something. He's saying, I've not only heard Jesus teach, but I saw him do things that were kind of crazy and unexplainable with my own eyes. It's an eyewitness account. And you've got to consider the historical context for a minute. Remember, every letter uh, in the Bible has a historical context. There's something going on at that time when it was written that that letter is either going to explicitly or implicitly address in the writing. And during John's time, when he wrote this letter, there was a particular heresy that was becoming more and more popular in the church known as docetism. Docetism. Uh, It is a precursor, incidentally, to an even more popular heresy that the church battled in the second, third, and fourth centuries known as Gnosticism. 
And both docetism and Gnosticism deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. They put very little emphasis on the body, on the physical body at all. So in Gnosticism, the emphasis is on the spiritual realm. The physical realm is bad, it's evil, it's passing away. The the spiritual realm is good, and so we want to put emphasis on the spirit, and who cares about the physical realm because it's not important. So Jesus didn't actually, when he rose again from the dead in Gnosticism, he didn't rise physically from the dead. He appeared as sort of like an apparition, as sort of like a ghost, right? And, uh, but he wasn't actually physically resurrected. This is a heresy uh, called Gnosticism that still echoes through the church today, actually. It's, it's, you know, it, it didn't die in the fourth century, sadly. It, it still continues to be perpetuated in different ways. So it's not uncommon for you to hear something like, you are a spirit and you have a body. You ever heard someone say that before? You are a spirit and you have a body. Or even worse, you are a spirit trapped inside of a body. You may have heard this before. Uh, Both of these are just neo-Gnosticism. They're false, they're unbiblical, they should be rejected. Your body, you need to understand this, your body matters a great deal. In fact, I would even say it this way. You are a body. You are a body. You're not just a spirit, you're a spirit too. You have spirit essence but you are a body. And you might be tempted to think as we talk through this, why are we even talking about this? Why are we talking about Gnosticism? I don't believe that. I don't think that. What what does this have to do with life today? And it's a fair question, but I want you to consider for a moment that if Gnosticism diminishes the importance of the physical body, of the physical realm, that if you buy into that, if you put all of your emphasis on the spiritual and not on the physical, then here's what happens. You inevitably begin to buy into a distorted view of gender identity and sexuality. Because while you may have a male body physically, you may feel female inwardly, and right now the culture would dictate to you that what you feel inwardly takes precedent over what you are physically. This is Gnosticism. This is not a new thing. The transsexual movement, it's not a new thing at all. It's just repackaged Gnosticism. It is a 2,000-year-old heresy, and it must be rejected by the church. It was rejected by the apostles themselves. It's incompatible with scripture. You are a body. Your body matters. God made you. Think about this, that you, the only time you will ever exist in eternity apart from your physical body is that time between death and resurrection. The Bible teaches that you are made a body, that you will die a physical death, and that there will be a blip of time in eternity. Paul says when you are away from the bodies, be present with the Lord, you'll be in the presence of the Lord, but that when God resurrects all of mankind, which is what Revelation says, outlines it very clearly, you as believers will be resurrected into the newness of a heavenly created, perfectly restored body. Still your body, but perfect. Think Jesus. Jesus had the scars in his hands, but he was, it was his resurrected body. You're going to have a resurrected body and you will live in that resurrected body for eternity. Your body matters a lot, a whole lot. It matters a great deal. It matters to God. It matters to the heart of God. It matters to who you are. Gnosticism would have you reject this, but the Bible would tell you, no, you matter. Your physical body matters. So John is going to tell us, look, I not only heard Jesus teach, I not only saw Jesus, but we physically touched him as well. It was a reality touched, number three. If you keep reading, he says, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Another unique expression in the New Testament to touch 
with our hands. It's only found here in the New Testament. John is setting up a foolproof argument for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's calling us back to the basics of the gospel. He's saying that Jesus really lived, he really died, and that he physically rose again. We heard him, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands. It's a reality, it really happened. Not only is it a reality seen, and a reality heard, and a reality touched, but finally, it's a reality proclaimed as well. Notice verse two. He says, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you this eternal life. There are several verbs in this uh, passage, these first four verses, but there are three in the present tense. We testify, we proclaim, and then in verse four, we get we write. All of them have to do with telling you about Jesus. And all three of them are in the present tense, which in the Greek language conveys the idea of a continual action. So it's not really that we testify and we proclaim and we write, but that we are testifying, we are proclaiming ongoing, we are writing to you ongoing. In other words, it's not enough for John to have heard Jesus, to have seen Jesus, to have touched Jesus. He's got to tell you about Jesus as well. He's compelled to tell you about this experience. I have, we have uh, passes to Six Flags. We, we, they're just like a membership that we, we got a long time. I don't think they even do the membership anymore. I think they're back to just season passes. But we love, I love to take my daughters to Six Flags. It's one of my favorite things to do. They love it. It reminds me, uh, when I was a kid, I loved going and uh, I was always just dropped off alone. I like to be there with them, present, probably the inner child in me, who knows. But I love to go. I take them all the time. In fact, when I traveled to San Antonio recently to sing at a funeral and preach at Refuge, we were like, we're going to Fiesta, Texas on Saturday. Like, it's just a thing we do. And there are times when Jessica, my wife, has other commitments to uh, just meeting with other people, doing other things, work, whatever. And, and there may be times where I have like an afternoon with the girls. And I'm like, I'm going to just go to Six Flags while she's doing whatever she's doing, you know, kind of our daddy-daughter thing. And, and most of the time, I tell her when I'm going, you know, mostly, um, <laughs> I guess there, are, there probably has been once or twice where we've just gone and she's called. We're like, hey, we're on a roller coaster, right? Um, but, but here's the reality. Even if I were to never tell her when we go to Six Flags, she's going to find out. Because the moment we get home, the girls are going to run in and be like, mom, guess what happened at Six Flags, right? It, because it's not enough to ride the rides and to have all the fun and to see all the things. They got to tell you about it as well. Lydia puked. It was awesome, Right? That's the force of this part of the text. Simply seeing and hearing and touching Jesus wasn't enough for the disciples. They were compelled to tell other people about him as well. They had to. It wasn't an option. So my question for you this morning, one of them, is how, how captivated are you by Jesus? And, and are you so captivated by him that you have to tell people about him? Are you so captivated by the Lord that you have to tell the people? I think pastors and preachers often approach this topic the wrong way. We, they spend a lot of time telling you that you need to talk about Jesus more. You need to do this, right? Now, the Bible, the Bible does like, indicate that sharing the gospel, making disciples, is, it, it's a commandment. It's not something we're really supposed to pray about. We're told to do it, right? You can pray about who you want to share the gospel with and make disciples, but, but it is on the table as something we, we are to do Per the Lord. But I think pastors and preachers a lot of times approach this from the wrong angle in that they spend a lot of time sort of guilting you into doing it more, right? And I think that's the wrong approach. I'm much more interested in why you're not already doing it. Because here's the deal. Humans are wired up in such a way where we talk about the things that captivate us. It's just how we're made. If you go on a cruise, 
You're not going to find many people on the cruise like following you around like, hey, be sure to tell all your friends about it. Be sure to tell everybody on Facebook. Are you going to make a post right now? They're not doing that. You're on a cruise. They're assuming you're going to tell people about it. And if you don't tell people about it, they probably don't want you telling people about it because it was a bad cruise. Because it wasn't good enough to talk about to begin with. If you go to Disney World or Universal or one of these like awesome theme parks, right, these destination vacations, no one is pressuring you to tell your friends about it. They assume you're going to. They assume you're taking pictures because you're about to put it on Facebook. Make all your friends jealous, right? This is how it works. We, we talk about the things that captivate us. So for me, as a pastor, if I have to guilt you into talking about Jesus, I'm not sure I want you talking about Jesus. And that may sound controversial. I, I, I hope that you'll want to talk about Jesus, but, but not because I said so, but because you love him, because you're captivated by him, because you've been changed and transformed by him, because you have his spirit within you and you can't help it. But if I have to guilt you into doing it, you're going to be like, yeah, right? And can God work through that? Sure, absolutely. But I want you to consider, why am I feeling guilted into this and why do I not already want to tell people about him? It might be that you're not captivated by him. It might be that you've never been transformed by him. And you've always just come to church because it's just what you did. And my hope for you is that you'll evaluate that. And that, that you will be captivated by the risen Lord in such a way that you can't help but talk about him to other people. For John, the apostle, he was captivated by Jesus. He loved Jesus. For him, it was not enough to hear him and see him and touch him. He's got to tell you about him as well. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was a reality. It is a reality. Jesus is not a myth. He's not a legend. He really died. He really rose again physically. He was seen. He was heard. He was touched. And those who experienced this, this, this moment in history, his presence, they want everyone else to know about him as well. They want everyone to connect with this reality. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Top priority. First importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. This for Paul is number one on the list. You have to know before anything else, above everything else, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. It cannot be overstated how important the resurrection is. It's the foundational building block of the faith. If all of the other doctrines are bricks that are constructing a faith, the resurrection is the foundation foundation. It's, it, everything rests on it. It's, it's, it's more than just a story. It's reality. And when you believe this reality, Paul says there are results that follow. Continue with me. Let's talk about the results of belief. Go back to verse 2. We'll, we'll read verses 2 through 4 here. He says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Not only is John going to remind his readers of the reality of Jesus Christ, but he's going to outline the results of what follow when you believe this reality, when you believe the gospel, in other words, and are born again. In other words, the reality of the resurrection, when it is proclaimed to people, has results upon belief. And the first one, he says, is fellowship. 
It's the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that means something like partnership or communion. It conveys the idea of cooperation. In other words, those who you are in fellowship with are in a sort of cooperative partnership with you. And this fellowship is expressed in two different directions. First is found in verse three. He says, we proclaim also to you so that what? You too may have fellowship with us. There's an aspect of horizontal fellowship going on here in this text. In other words, the church, especially in the local context, but certainly in the universal as well, ought to see itself or one another as mutual partners in the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and caring for and serving with one another and and worshiping and and loving and, and following Jesus. There's a mutual partnership that we ought to see across the body in the local sense. So understand something really important. Fellowship is not the same thing as friendship. You gotta get that. We like to just sort of baptize the word friendship and turn it into fellowship and use it for every sort of function of hanging out with people who are Christians or not. So Sunday, football, we're going to invite some people over, we're going to cook hot dogs, and we're going to fellowship, right? Wrong. That's, that's not what fellowship is. It's not the same thing. Fellowship is for Christians, It is not for non-Christians. In other words, you can't have fellowship with those who reject Jesus. You can't do it. It's not that you shouldn't do it. It's that it's impossible to do it. Because fellowship is a mutual partnership with the same goal in mind, namely to love, worship, and proclaim Christ. Those are not goals shared with people who do not love, worship, or proclaim Christ. It's just common sense. It doesn't mean you should be mean or uncaring to non-Christians. It doesn't mean that you can't have friendships with them and love them. It just means that you need to shift from seeing that as fellowship because fellowship is reserved for and only possible with people who share the same cooperative partnership with you. In other words, it's a result of faith. It's a result of faith. Koinonia is more than just simply friendship. It's a mutual partnership towards a common goal. Not only that, but there's horizontal, but there's also an aspect of vertical fellowship as well. Look what he says in verse three. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' arrival onto the earth in the flesh doesn't just shape the way that we relate to one another, but it completely redefines our relationship with God himself. That's why John says in verse two, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you what? The eternal life. Salvation, Jesus is eternal life. He's not just the means to eternal life, he is eternal life. That means that when you proclaim Jesus, you are proclaiming eternal life. When you receive Jesus, you are receiving eternal life. Christ shapes not only the fellowship that we enjoy with one another in that he gives definition to our common goals in this partnership together, but he changes the terms of our relationship with God the Father. He grants forgiveness, he restores fellowship, He renews us and restores us and all the things that the Bible says he does. So the first result of right belief in this reality of the resurrection is that we're given fellowship, koinonia, mutual partnership. But there's something else that he gives as well. And we'll call it fulfillment. Look at verse four. He says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Notice that he doesn't say so that your joy may be made complete. He doesn't say so that my joy may be made complete. He says our joy, our joy, we together, when we agree on who Jesus is, when our fellowship 
is not only with one another in mutual cooperation with the gospel, but it's also with the Heavenly Father and with Christ the Son through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's a deep sense of fulfilling joy that comes from that, that can only come from that, that's completely unique to the Holy Spirit. This is what the church is meant to look like. This is a snapshot of the church. Some of you have an idea of what church should be like, and it's not at all the idea conveyed in the Bible. Maybe you went to church as a kid, and this is just kind of how you've always imagined church should be. People who just argue a lot over the carpet of color, color of carpet. The church is much more than that. It's, it's meant to be a body of people from, from all different languages and all different cultures and all different viewpoints and perspectives, all of whom have come into the belief that they are broken sinners in need of a savior and have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And they are committed to proclaiming the resurrection to other people as well. They rally around the, the reality of Christ crucified, a Christ who was seen by John, who was heard by John, who was touched by the apostles, who was proclaimed, who grants fellowship and gives deep and abiding fulfillment when we believe. I grew up in Arlington, Texas. I went to uh, James Martin High School. Um, I would say go Warriors, but I don't care. Um, I was a sophomore, I remember, in uh, English class. And I don't even remember the, um, the teacher, honestly, the teacher's name. I don't really remember many of my teachers, um, mainly because I did a lot of drugs and alcohol in high school. But I remember this particular sophomore English class, um, there was one other girl in my class that I wasn't even super good friends with. We, we ran around in a lot of the same circles. We ended up at a lot of the same parties, but I, I never really was like super good friends with her, but I'll never forget her. Her name is Antoinette. And uh, she, like me, was a, uh, a challenge to the teachers in the classroom. And uh, so much so that by September of that year, she... Uh, would just kind of come in. It was the first class of the day, so it was pretty early. She would just like put her head down and fall asleep, and the teacher didn't even try to wake her up. It was just kind of like, whatever. She's not disrupting anything. Let her sleep, right? Uh, which I think is wisdom. Um, I remember one morning we were, we were talking about short stories, and uh, they were all really depressing. I do remember that. I don't remember many of them, but I remember the ones we read were really sad, and so we were talking through the themes and the characters of these short stories and having this whole discussion about it and the teacher was lecturing over the author and the, the motifs and just all the different elements of, of writing and storytelling. And Antoinette set a few desks up into the right of me. So she was like right in my, in my uh, view as I was looking at the teacher. And she had her head down that day with a hoodie on and, and kind of like this on the desk, right? And so we thought she was asleep. And the teacher was talking about whatever short story we were talking about. And she immediately flung her head up and in total disruptive moment yells out, a plane just ran into the World Trade Center. And our teacher was like, Antoinette, that's not funny. And she took her hoodie off to reveal headphones because we didn't have AirPods back in my day. And she was listening to the radio, because we didn't have iPhones, and she took her headphones off and she said, I'm listening to the news, a plane just ran into the World Trade Center in New York City. And the teacher said, are, are you sure? And she said, yeah, they're talking about it right now. 
And where I was sitting was, was again, in direct view of the door that led into the classroom. And outside of that door uh, was, I think, probably the longest corridor at Martin High School. It's extremely long. It goes down a really, really long ways. And I remember the, the teacher uh, got up and walked over to the door to open the door to go out and see if any of the other teachers knew what was going on. And when she opened the door, I could see two or three other teachers already standing out in the hallway looking around like, what's going on? A couple minutes passed. We were all just kind of like, you know, laughing. We, we didn't know what was going on. I mean, we had no idea. We were high schoolers. The teacher rolled in the TV, every high schooler's dream, and, uh, and turned the TV on. And we watched the, the news broadcast of, of all of this as they talked about, you know, perhaps it was an instrumentation malfunction or maybe the pilot had a heart attack or, you know, we're really unclear about what was going on and, and, and we're watching and not really paying attention and just trying, you know. And, and I remember we watched live as the second plane hit. And when that happened, there was like a, a clear shift in the room of something's wrong. Like this isn't, this isn't what we think it is. There's something going on here. Class let out. The next uh, period for me was track and field. I was a pole vaulter, believe it or not. And um, we didn't pole vault that day. We didn't go outside that day. We weren't allowed to because we had no idea what was happening. Is, is, you know, are we going to be attacked? We had no idea. And, uh, and by lunchtime, most of the parents had come to pick all their kids up. I'm a little resentful. Mine didn't. We stuck there the whole day. But whatever. I'm working through it. But for the coming weeks and months, there was this deep sense of fear and uncertainty. The world was totally different. It was totally changed. Um, we, had, we had seen something with our eyes. Right? We had heard something. We'd heard the, the collision of, of those planes with those buildings. We had seen footage of firefighters pulling people from the debris with their hands. And now every year on 9-11, you see, what, bumper stickers and T-shirts and Facebook posts, and what do they all say? Never forget. Never forget. This past year, my daughters, 9, 9, and 6, learned about 9-11 as an historical event in a book. They came home and they said, Dad, we learned about the Twin Towers today. I said, yeah? And they said, yeah, did you know about that? And I said, yeah, sweetheart, I was alive then. <laughs> I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. It's not just a story in a history book to me. It's a memory, one that I'll never forget. It's, it's a reality. I was there. That's what John is saying here about Jesus. We will never forget. We'll never forget what we saw, what we heard, what we touched. We're never going to forget it because we were there we're never going to stop talking about it because it was fundamental to everything else that we believe. It, was, it changed everything for us. It changed the world around us, the reality of the resurrection. It's foundational to everything that we know, everything that we believe, everything that we do. And, and you have got to connect with that 2,000 years later. You're, we're going to cover a lot of things in 1 John, a lot of doctrines, propitiation in two weeks. We're going to talk about confession of sin next week. There's a lot of things that John is going to dictate to us in very simple forms about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But if you miss the importance of the resurrection of Christ, you miss it all. You miss everything. 
Everything hinges on it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. It's trash. And we're all still under sin. We're all condemned to death. We have no hope. We have no future. We have no eternity if he hasn't been raised. You must believe this. It is everything to the Christian faith. If we're going to construct a faith that is lasting, that can withstand the pressure and the pain of life, it begins here. It begins with the physical, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget it. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for John's powerful testimony a lived experience of what it was like to see and to hear and to touch the risen Lord. We're grateful that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, he has put this down on paper that we 2,000 years later might be reminded that it's not just a story in a history book, that it really happened, that there were eyewitnesses, that there were people who saw it, who were willing to die for it, And so God, would you grant us belief that we might have fellowship with one another, united around this partnership in the gospel to make Jesus known to the world around us and and fellowship with you, our great and loving and merciful God, and that through that we might find deep fulfillment, unshakable fulfillment that only your Holy Spirit can birth within us. I pray for those this morning who don't know the Lord, that you would give them belief. We know that belief only comes by, by your will, by your spirit. Would you grant belief, repentance and belief, that they too might be added unto the fellowship and sense that same fulfillment that we have. How we love you, God. We, we worship you. We thank you. We're excited to walk through this book. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you all. If, if you are a, uh, a newcomer here, uh, I'd love to have you join me at lunch, uh, A105, just in this room right here in this hallway. Uh, you can ask any questions that you might have of me. I love doing this uh, with, with all of our newcomers. Uh, also, if you would just pray for me, uh, this next week is, is uh, going to be pretty solidly booked. I leave tomorrow morning for Houston, Texas. I'm actually going to get to see an old mentor friend of mine, uh, Alan McBrayer. Uh Yeah. Uh, I'm going up there, or down there rather, for the uh, Southern Baptist of Texas Convention for Young Pastors. It's a network that I'm a part of, and so I'll be there through Wednesday. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get back Wednesday. It's supposed to maybe ice, I'm hearing, so we'll see about how that goes. But uh, then I have doctoral studies Wednesday, Thursday, and then I teach at a Disciple Now conference at Lamar Baptist Church just down the highway on Friday and Saturday, uh, and then I'll be back in the pulpit Sunday. So busy week. Uh, pray that the ministry of, of um, energy drinks and coffee does its job for me. <laughs> Bless you all. We'll see you next time.